Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is composer Michael Raffel. But first of all, it looks like Spotify payments are going down to artists. Now, the interesting thing here is the fact that I read an article the other day that was really critical on Spotify about its payments going down. And I did some research, and it's true. They're going down, but not by much and not across the board. So in other words, you have to understand that there's two tiers. There's the free tier, which is ad supported. And of course, that's always going to have a lower payout rate than the premium tier, which of course is the paid subscription tier. So if we look at this, we find that the most recent data that we have, which is for July, we find that in order to make $100 from Spotify, you need about 500,000 streams. So that's on the ad-supported tier. Now, just to show you that there is a little bit of a difference, in 2016, exactly two years ago in July, we found that you needed 491,000 streams. So yeah, there's a little bit of a difference, but it's not huge. Now, in the premium tier, in order to make $100, you need 165,000 streams. So in other words, you need 500,000 on the ad-supported, you only need 165,000. Now, there is a bit more of a difference here. In 2016, exactly two years ago, when we had the data, and when we compare 2016 to this year, we find that you needed 150,000 streams. So yeah, there was definitely a difference. What we're finding is the ad-supported tier is going up slightly and the premium tier is going down slightly. Now, just as a comparison, on YouTube, you need 1.35 million streams in order to receive $100 royalty, 1.35 million. On Apple Music, you only need 135,000. So on Apple Music, you're making more money than on Spotify, and everybody knew that. It's always been that way, and it still is today. But the fact of the matter is, you need a fair amount of streams in order to start to make money. And this is where everybody gets hung up because you start to think that 135000 is worth more than it is because you're thinking in terms of sales. 135000 sales, for instance, would be quite substantial. It's not when we come to streaming. That doesn't mean that you can't make substantial money because people are doing it. And they're doing it because the scale is different. Again, I keep on stressing this, but it's worth knowing. Once upon a time, a million of anything was a lot. These days, a million just kind of sort of gets you in the game. At 10 million, people begin to notice. At 50 million, that's when you begin to have a hit. So in other words, you need about 50 million streams in order to really start to make any money. And really, the huge hits are now getting close to a billion or are over a billion streams. So when people started to complain that, in fact, they have 300,000 streams and not making much money, well, yeah, because the scale is different. So we have to begin to think differently about all this. And once you begin to move your way of thinking somewhat, then it's easier to accept these numbers. But if we still think of everything in terms of sales the way it used to be, then, of course, it's very difficult to get your arms around it. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success. 
at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my new Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, this is a very interesting and exciting time in audio, but it's sort of behind the scenes. If we go to any audio conference or any audio convention, what you're seeing basically products that are the same as 50 years ago, 100 years ago even. Speakers are still made the same and microphones are still made the same, but that is gradually changing. On the research front, there's a lot of things going on. One of the most exciting is something known as nanomembranes. The Ulsan National Institute of Science and Technology in South Korea just made a breakthrough, and this is using something called silver nanowire in order to construct these nanomembranes. What's exciting is the fact that now we can turn almost any surface into either a microphone or a loudspeaker. Now, I mean any surface, including the human body, including any kind of surface that you might want to put these nanomembranes on top of. They're ultra light in weight. They attach to any surface. They're extremely flexible and transparent and won't crack when they're bent. They're wearable. They have outstanding optical and electrical and mechanical properties. Theoretically, these can replace microphones. Now, Most of the time we think vocal microphones, and yes, that may be the case eventually, but when I think of this, I think, what would happen if you actually coated the top of an acoustic guitar, for instance, with nanomembranes, and even the neck, and that was picking up the vibrations that way? And it wouldn't only be the top, what if you also coated inside the body? That would give you much better coverage than maybe we ever had with a traditional microphone. The same thing would happen for almost any type of acoustic instrument. Imagine a piano, the inside of a piano, all coated with these. Imagine a flute. Imagine any kind of woodwind or brass instrument, for instance. So when I look at this technology, I get really excited, and I think, you know what, there's something that's going to happen here, and it may not be that far away where it could actually finally change the way we capture audio. My guest today is guitarist Michael Raffel, who started his career in the 80s hair metal band Jailhouse, but turned his experience into a career first as a hit songwriter and later as a television composer. Along the way, he's worked as a songwriter-producer for Disney Records and Disney Mania and as the main composer for The Price is Right show. As a composer, his music has appeared in thousands of TV shows, films, and video games, including the 2018 World Cup. In the interview, we spoke about making the transition from band life to composer, his approach to writing, some of the gear he uses, and how he's expanding his business. Michael and I spoke via phone from his studio in Los Angeles. I'm really curious, how did you start in the business? I know your history, and it's really interesting, but uh, how did you start? Let's go before Jailhouse. Well, you know, uh, before Jailhouse, you know, I had grown up in San Francisco, uh, and, uh, I had some bands out there, um, and a friend of mine, very close friend who I'm still, uh, very close with today, uh, his name's Greg Steele. And, uh, he formed a band called Faster Pussycat and he moved to Los Angeles and got a record deal. And 
it seemed very quick for him to get a record deal. So about a year later, I decided, well, you know what? I think I'm going to move to Los Angeles uh, because there seems to be more of a scene over there. And, and a lot of people that I grew up with, members of bands called Jet Boy, and a lot of people seem to have been moving over to Los Angeles. So I, you know, decided to move over here and, you know, find the right combination of people to form a band. Uh, and that's when I did form Jailhouse, actually. But, you know, just in San Francisco, I just pretty much played in bands as a kid. Uh, e even really young, I, w I was opening for bands in clubs like the Tubes and uh, Wasp and all these bands. And I was too young to even be in the club, so I'd have to wait in the parking lot and then go backstage to be able to go on stage and play with those, play with my bands. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, there's that, that's pretty much it before jailhouse because, uh, you know, I was, I was only, uh, 20 years old when I had put that band together. Uh, actually, yeah, yeah. About 20 years old when I put that band together. So, um, you know, besides that there, there wasn't too much going on besides just, you know, sitting in my room and playing to records and trying to become the best at the time guitar player I could be, uh, which I'm glad I did because, uh, later on in years, that wasn't that important to me. Songwriting was important. So, uh, I think sitting in my room as a kid before moving to Los Angeles served me pretty well because I can play guitar really well. And I pretty much, all of it to those days <laughs> yeah yeah you know what's interesting to me is you were right in the middle of the hairband era of los angeles of of hollywood right a lot of your contemporaries i'm a little older so i'm before then but a lot of your contemporaries haven't had the success that you've had later on I want to get into that a little bit of, of how you made the transition. But before that, you, you basically became more of a writer then, right? You, you went through that period with the band or a couple bands, and then, then you turned in more of, into a songwriter, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, in Jailhouse, you know, if you ever looked at those CDs, I mean, it was almost a little embarrassing because every single song was lyrics and melody, Michael Raffel, because I constantly wrote and the stuff I was writing was normally stronger than what the other members were writing. So we just ended up using all my stuff. I mean, a little bit of it may have just been ego and control. I was pretty young back then, but you know, I was very determined to, to be a songwriter. And, you know, after jailhouse, I started producing bands and, I wasn't really looking to do another band and uh, you know, I ended up joining a band called Neve, which I don't know if you know too much about, but uh, we were signed to Columbia records through Randy Jackson in, in 1999. And uh, we did a record with Don Gilmore who later went on to do Lincoln park and Matt Serletic who recorded don't want to miss a thing by Aerosmith. And, you know, I just, really was into songwriting, but at the same time, it was like I was watching the best producers in the business. And I would always sit 
in the back of the room and take everything in uh, as much as I could because in theory, I, I, I wanted to do what they were doing more than what I was doing. Me being in a band and going on stage, uh, sort of, I realized one day was just kind of just about ego. You know, it's kind of like, wow, you know, I want all these people to sort of worship me. And it was just one day I was like, you know what? I, I actually want to produce bands. I want to, I want to be involved with the art. I want to do that stuff. And I had a little success with that, you know, as far as doing some stuff as a producer on Disney records and the Hannah Montana show and all that stuff. And was starting to get a little success in that, but I really didn't like the business aspect of dealing with a lot of people. And I didn't like the Hollywood and I didn't like all that. So that's when I just started, you know, doing music for television and film really. Uh, and just sort of, yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened. I mean, you know, I kind of became okay, you know, I want to be a one man army and to answer your question about why a lot of other people and bands couldn't do that is just because I don't believe a lot of them are as versatile as musicians and songwriters as I am, because if you were to look at the libraries of music I've done, you'll go from rock to Southern rock to Nashville country rock to easy listening to orchestral music. And, uh, it was always important to me to be that versatile, to be able to do that. And, and I don't think a lot of other people in hair metal bands had that same mentality, to be honest. What was your musical background like? Were you schooled? I wasn't schooled, no. Um, you know, my brother was five years older than me, and he was in a band with Greg Steele, who went on to form Faster Pussycat later and moved to L.A., like I was saying. And as a kid they would rehearse and I was just five years younger than my brother. So I must've been like eight or nine and I would just always be in the rehearsals. Uh, and that, that's where I wanted to be more than anywhere, you know? Uh, and, and I sort of absorbed a lot of stuff. I mean, that I, I've been fortunate that way because I can pick up things, uh, just by watching people and, and hearing things and, uh, you know, so, so I think that's where it just came and determination really. Uh, but no, I, I, I never went to a school. I kind of wish I did in, in, in some aspect because, uh, it'd be nice to know as much as a lot of people know about theory. Uh, I'm envious of that. Um, I don't have that, you know, I, I have a little bit from, from, from what I do, but not as much as I could have learned and the funny thing is 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 next week i'm actually doing a uh q a at a school in hollywood for kids and <laughs> and i never went to music school and I'm, I'm they're asking me questions they asked me to come in uh a school called icon which uh is primarily more for djs and stuff like that icon collective sure i know them well yeah they're having me come in for uh, a q a next week which is kind of exciting for me. You know, I mean, I don't know exactly how that will go or not go. I mean, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to, uh, to answer any questions. If people are curious about, I mean, I've, I've definitely done a lot of stuff. I mean, there's no, no denying it. 
but so, I mean, I, I could pass on some of my, you know, experience to these kids and, you know, hopefully that will go well. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm thinking back to before when you were saying that one day you just decided that you didn't want to be on stage. I sort of had the same experience and it was fairly sudden. I was, uh, you know, just a player until I was maybe 40. One day I was on stage with the rather famous guitar player. I was his MD. The tour wasn't going well. And just something got to me. It was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I was doing a lot of studio work already. So it was like, I'm just going to spend all my time there. And it was the happiest day of my life, honestly, when I think of, you know, back to it, because all of this pressure kind of left. It's like, I don't have to worry about taking gigs that I didn't really want to take or, you know, just didn't have to do things that I, I didn't want to do and could concentrate more on the things that were fun. Did that sort of happen to you too? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I got to do a lot of things that I dreamed about doing. I mean, you know, my band Neve, we got to open for Kiss on the farewell tour. Wow. And, and as a kid, you know, as a kid, I grew up just loving Kiss. And, you know, you know, as a musician, Kiss is sort of, Kiss is sort of like junk food. If you, yeah. you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. you know, but, 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 but it's, it's addicting and good. You know, you, you know, I would, I would just, I would just love Kiss when I was growing up and, no, I, I still follow them, you know, it's like, because I like the feeling of my youth, you know, of doing that stuff. But, you know, after I remember after I got off stage, uh, from kiss, it just kind of felt like, fuck, you know what? I just, I just kind of blew my wad to be honest. I mean, I, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm not going to lie. You know, Neve got, Neve got dropped off Columbia records when Randy Jackson went to American Idol. So obviously we were kind of screwed anyways, but if I didn't have, I always wonder if I didn't have that experience, I wonder if I would have wanted to leave as fast because after that, I just felt like, you know what? Fuck. I just accomplished opening for, for kiss on the farewell tour. You know, it's like we did some dates and I don't know. I just, kind of felt like I had kind of closure after that. Like, you know what? I could do other things now. Yeah. You know, I've done that. No, I get it. Yeah. I, I don't really, yeah, I don't have the, the desire to, to play live really at all. Neither do I. And it's funny because kind of under duress, an old drummer that I used to play with asked me to go do, a, to sit in with him on, as a special guest on a festival in Florida a few years ago. And I did my best to get out of it saying, I don't have my chops because I, I don't play. You play every day, I'm sure, but I don't. And it's like, oh yeah. man, I, I'm just not up to this. But he insisted. So I did what I could. I practiced as much as I could. But as you know, you can play along the tracks all day long and it's not the same as when you're playing with people. When I got on stage, I didn't equip myself very well. So, uh, you know, I begged him not to post the, the video on YouTube or anything. And thankfully he didn't, uh, because it wasn't up to, you know, what I consider at least something that, you know, works for me. But anyway, I just don't have any desire to go back and, and do it anymore. I'm a little sad about that, frankly, because, you know, <laughs> uh, no, honestly. And, and the reason why is I always think of myself first and foremost as a musician and, you know, musicians play, <laughs> you know, so it's right, like, oh, right. there, there's some, 
some contradiction here. Well, you know, the thing is with me is, is I have friends who come over that want to talk about music and stuff. And you know, they always say, Oh, you never want to talk about music. You never want to do this. You know, the reason is, is because, you know, every single day of my life, I'm in my recording studio Monday through Friday. And it's all I do is deal with music. So when I'm not doing it, uh, in a way, I just don't really, if I, you know, if I listen to something, it's gotta be phenomenal or I'm not interested in even hearing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, or it's gotta be from back in the day to where I was too stupid to know. And then, you know, like, uh, I mean, you know, I'll always, you know, I'll always, I'm looking forward to a new ACDC record. I'll always have that in me because it reminds me of my youth. ACDC was one of my favorite bands, but you know, obviously they're not, uh, phenomenal, but they're phenomenal what they did. And, you know, I grew up on it. So I do look forward to like old things that, you know, cause music today is just, most of it is just awful. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's a real, weird thing for me almost to talk about music. You know, I have a friend who I grew up with who comes over here and sometimes he'll say, you know, back when Kiss was together, Peter Chris was a phenomenal drummer. And I'll say, dude, he was average at best. I think he's a phenomenal drummer. It, it's just embarrassing yourself. And then the people will just be like, God, why are you getting so angry? It's like, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm just so deep into music that when I it's, I almost can't have conversations with my friends anymore about certain things because I just get too aggressive because they're just so wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, you're analytical about it. Sure. Yeah. I, and, and I get that. I have a hard time listening to music anymore and it's not whether I like it or not. It's because I just analyze it so much. So many times instead of right. enjoying it for what it is, I'm thinking, well, that's a nice reverb tail on that. Or, wow, look at that effect. Or, you know, one of those things rather. Or, boy, I didn't expect that change to be there rather than, oh, that, you know, just digging on the music. Right, right. No, for sure. I mean, that, you know, I, I was listening to a record in my car yesterday thinking, does this sound even half as good as what I'm doing by myself now? I mean, and these are records I've grown up on and just thinking, this record really doesn't sound good. And then mm -hmm. I think to myself, you know, I have to stop thinking this way. It's, it's, you know, I'm, I get excited to, to go on a hike and listen to Leonard Skinner and I'm, I'm noticing the hi-hats not perfectly in time. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't think this way. I mean, first of all, maybe that's good. Maybe music is too sterile nowadays because everything's so perfect. And, you know, you just start when I hear music, I start in my brain, just like, like you're saying, and uh, it's almost a curse. Yeah. <laughs> Let's jump back for a second, Michael. Uh, you were talking about Disney Records and and working on Hannah Montana. Does that mean you work with Miley? Well, I didn't, you know, my things that I did with her was like on some of the things we did, she would come on stage and I actually ran sound on that tour um, and stuff. So it was high and goodbye. It was, you know, I did an episode where one of the other kids sang one of my songs and she was in the scene and I was there, but no, it definitely wasn't a situation where I was working with Miley. Um, I was, you know, if you buy a Hannah Montana three, I have a song on there that's sang by one of the other artists that was on the show. 
so that's kind of how that was. And uh, I just did some more stuff with him. And, uh, you know, it ended up like on Disney Mania and on Hannah Montana and all this stuff. But, you know, uh, to be honest, that was some of the stuff that leaned me out of it because I didn't like, I did not like the business. I didn't like dealing with with uh, Disney records. I, I just didn't like the way it was done at all. I just thought, you know, you know, I just I wasn't into it. I didn't like the way a lot of people I'd worked with were, were very Hollywood. I didn't <laughs> like that. Um, you know, it was just like, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty much, you know, the, the more successful I become, I'm, I'm just, I feel like I'm even nicer. I mean, not nicer, but more, more honest and more able to talk about things and just, you know, I meet people, you know, I went, I went not to get, you know, off, off subject, but you know, I, I have a friend of mine who is in production music as well. And we're, we're phenomenal friends. And we went to uh, the PMA music conference and there's just this one guy there talking with sunglasses on and just like acting like, you know, he's Keith Richards. And I, I mean, I almost stood up and just said, dude, you know what? We're doing production music. You know, we're, we're not Keith Richards. We're not in the Beatles. You know, we're not this just take your glasses off and answer the questions. But it's just <laughs> stupid when people are so, you know, I mean, look, you know, when, when I was in a hair metal glam band doing interviews, that was different in my early twenties, but you know, we're you know, 50 years old now, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, these guys are just embarrassing. Some of them, but you know. Okay. So you're doing uh Disney records and the TV show, Hannah Montana and, you decide you don't like the business. So is that when you got into production music? Well, you know, pretty much, you know, I started off, uh, with a smaller company at the time and they would just reach out to me. You know, I sent them some stuff through, through actually through my bassist from jailhouse who I'm still friends with. And he was saying, Hey, you know, I, I recorded these guys who are getting a lot on television and I said, oh, cool. You know, so I started, you know, they said, uh, well, we're working on Duck Dynasty. So I said, okay. And then, you know, I watched the show and I took out my guitar slide and you know, I was doing stuff like Duck Dynasty and it was going on the show. And then I thought, oh, wow, that was easy. So then, you know, they would say, well, now we're doing this show. And, and you know, they kept coming back to me because, uh, I just kept giving them different genres and they were all being used. And then, uh, what really happened, the crossroads was when they had me work on the prices, right. And next thing I know, all my stuff was on prices, right. But they were taking way more money. <laughs> and then the company, this company that was getting in on prices, right. Would come to my house and write me personal checks saying, do more, do more, do more. And then I just thought something's not right. You know, there's something, something's weird. So I called the show myself and then the, com the company would never talk to me again. They were furious. I went behind their back. Long story short, it took me about a year. And now, you know, the producer of Price is Right is a great friend of mine. I'm, I'm the main composer on that show. And, uh, you know, he was at my birthday party and all that stuff. And that's when it really kind of was like, okay, you know, and then I started, uh, finding the biggest libraries in the entire world 
you know, Universal and, uh, you know, EMI and BMG, all these huge people. Uh, and I would, I would do a record and I would send it over there and, you know, they would write me a check for 20 grand. Wouldn't even write me a check. You just put it right in my bank account. And that was that. And then I would, it would be all over TV and I would get, you know, half the writers, they keep all the publishing and, uh, sync fees split that. And next thing I knew, I just thought, all right, you know, I need to do this for, I'm going to go crazy doing this now. And now I have about 20, 30 records I've done through all the biggest labels and really have a, a name for myself now anywhere I go because of all the success I've had. Uh, and I, and, and I'm now bringing in, uh, other people and I co-own a label right now and, uh, bringing in kids, you know, who do DJ stuff and stuff like that and, uh, splitting that and really sort of kind of building an empire, not, not even for the money anymore, just, just cause I enjoy doing it just which is nice to actually enjoy doing something in music and making money off it. So I say that every day to people. It's like when I was in, when I was signed to Columbia records, I was not enjoying music. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. It's kind of backwards. It's kind of, it's almost backwards. You know, you, you, you know, you have the band members you're fighting with, you got, you know, it's just, it's just too much, too many personalities. And you know, now, now that I'm doing this, uh, it's great. I, you know, I look forward to going in my studio every day. I, I look forward to it. And, and I work with integrity and make sure everything I do is as good as I can make it. Uh, and that's that. <laughs> you you know? know, I have a really good friend who was a recording engineer. He, he was a guitar player first and foremost, but he was a recording engineer and making his living that way. And and kind of burnt out on it and just decided he was going to do something similar to you. And now he has 15,000 cues. Wow. I think he told me worldwide he was on 156 series. It was, it, it's just, you know, wow. phenomenal that he built it up, but it's the same thing. You know, every day that's what he does. He writes and he knows how to do it and he gets people that yeah. are asking him to write. I just, just to let you know, not to one up your friend, but I'm on 709 series now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very cool. Very cool. And that's great for him. And, and it's, it's really great for anybody who, who, who gets in the niche. I mean, if they could do it and it's working, it's just so great, you know? And, and I think that people don't understand that. I mean, obviously it's going to take a lot of work to start it. You know, you can't, you know, I, I've had friends that have called me and said, Hey, you know, I just got this cue and I just got paid after two years and it was only $50. And uh -huh. I said, well, how many, how many cues do you have up? And he goes, one, I go, okay, well, when you have like 6,100, give me a call, Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you know, it's just, uh, but you know, it sounds like your friend really, really gets it and, and that's great. You know, it's, it's really cool when it happens and that, and you're on your own schedule most, most of the time too. It's a numbers game, isn't it? It is. It's, it's a numbers game, but you know, it's like, I just got, uh, my statement for the last 90 days and you look through it and it's like, okay, you know, now let's say that you have, uh, for that three months, uh, let's say you have like 30 or 40 different things on price is right. 
it all depends on how long it is, really. I mean, some of them are going to pay uh, $20 and some of them are going to pay $300. And then, you know, I had something on CNN the other day when I was looking through it, and those were those were $1,500 for a queue. And, uh, and then next statement, I have the World Cup coming up, which I have no idea what that's going to be, but I'm pretty anxious thinking, because uh, I had over 10 minutes of music on the World Cup, and uh, I mean, that's huge. So I have no idea what that's going to pay, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it is kind of a numbers game and, you know, it's, uh, it's always different. Do you specialize in one niche or do you try to do different genres? Well, I mean, like I said, I mean, I, I've done country records. I've done Southern rock. Uh, you know, on a lot of the NFL stuff I did, it was uh, orchestral based. Um, you know, uh, but I have most fun doing metal just to be honest and not metal, like not metal, like that we grew up. I mean, my, my son is 24 years old and he sort of got me into, and it was sort of like pulling teeth because when I first heard bands like, uh, periphery or Meshuga or, uh, you know, a day to remember all these issues all these newer new metal young bands i first heard them it didn't make sense to me at all i was like what what is this mm. you know the scream screaming cookie monster weird shit like but now you know it's like he's my son don't even listen to that anymore now he's on the electronic stuff but i'm the one stuck in all that metal stuff because a lot of that stuff you know bands like periphery and i mean it's like progressive metal I mean, you got to be a phenomenal player to play that stuff. And uh, I got deep into it, and I started doing records like that. And uh, the interesting thing about that is I think the people that were buying it never heard of those bands and probably thought that I was kind of doing my, like I, like I invented it, hmm. but I didn't. But, but, you know, it was like, uh, so I would get calls from Universal being like, wow, you know, this metal record you made, you know, we never heard anything like that and all that. And I'm sort of just thinking in the back of my head, well, it's basically just influenced off bands like Periphery and Meshuggah and all that stuff and tune your guitar down to drop A and, you know, just get as low and heavy as possible. And, you know, but yeah, you know, I enjoy doing the metal stuff and, and it gets placed all the time. But you know, then you, you, you turn it around and you do stuff for prices, right? Which is, you know, game show stuff. And, you know, you try, try not to, you try not to get too, too long of a period in one genre because mm -hmm. then you get bored, you know, and I, I try not to get bored. So I'm like, okay, well, after this, I'm going to do, you know, something different. And, you know, I try to change it up as much as I can. Uh, I haven't visited country in probably a year because I did three records back to back and then I did like an acoustic heartfelt inspirational. I did like three of those records. And so there's, there's a boatload of styles out there now that, uh, and when I do a record, I, you know, when you go to a store and they have those frames where you can frame old vinyl covers. Yeah. I actually print out at Kinko's each record that comes out through libraries and in my studio, they're all there. So I could see this boatload of work that I've done 
And then, you know, I was like, it's just, you know, I try to stay, I try to keep myself pretty inspired. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty much what I do. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, mix, I mix, I mix it up, but I do love metal, so I can't help it. You know, that's all the guitar stuff, you know, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. There's nothing more fun than playing with the load of distortion and sustain. That's for sure. <laughs> Hell yeah. It's a blast, you know? So then, you know, and, uh, I got my drums to where, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be signed with, uh, Steven Slate, which, uh, does drums and, and outboard gear, pro audio, uh, software, and they've given me everything. Good stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds, sounds, it's sonically sounding great. And it's, it's, well, I mean, you know, as you know, recording has changed going in a, in a studio, you know, I used to mic up my, my Bogner amps and my Marshalls and my Vibro Kings and all that stuff was sold. And I just basically use my Kemper now, you know, which is just a direct thing. And it sounds just as good if not better so i mean recording has changed i mean in theory a lot of it is already done for you because you know if you plug in a guitar and have a you know kids plug in a guitar in a kemper and think okay there's my guitar tone because they don't realize when we were younger we you know and a lot of people still do it we would have to mic up you know 257s uh you know a marshall and you know, get the proper sound through the EQ, through through the, you know, there was so much to it. Yeah, you worked hard. Yeah, right. You know, now, you know, you dial up number 38, and then there you go. There's your process, processed Mesa Boogie ready to go. Um, and it goes the same for everything, pretty much. Michael, are, are you a one-man band where you do everything? You're doing the mixing and, and all recording and everything, yeah. Yeah, I do uh, all the drum programming. I play live bass, live guitars. Uh, if vocals are needed, I'll do that, and then I'll mix it. And um, yeah, I've I've done that on all my records. Uh, just do everything myself, just because you know, like I say, you know, it, it comes from me from being a young kid. I mean, that that was always what I loved was was music and creating music and. And in a way, I, I don't really want anybody else involved because I can handle it all myself. You know, I, but what I'm doing now, like I told you earlier, is trying to spread the love by bringing in younger kids who do DJ stuff and wanting to get into this. So I do bring in other people that way now. But yeah, as far as my own stuff, yeah, I do the mixing and do everything. And that, that was years and years of being in that studio. I mean, I've been sitting in my house studio for two decades. <laughs> I mean, even when I was in Neve, you know, we would record the demos at my house, you know. So, uh, you know, if you're, in, if you're doing something every single day, you better get better or you're in the wrong business. So, you know, the stuff sounds really good now. You know, it, it didn't sound like that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. One of the things I always noticed about production composers, production music composers, is the fact that the stuff always sounds terrific. It always sounds great. The productions are wonderful. The sound is good. It's big and full and round. And I think 
the reason is that is that you do it every day and you're doing at least five times more music than anybody that's just in the you know traditional music business of making records because you're you know you're doing it all the time and cranking out stuff not all five time. times more than that yes a sure. hundred times more i mean just con- yeah constantly but you got to understand i mean you know, in theory, you know, doing production music is, is very similar to Groundhog Day because, you know, once, you know, once I do my mixes and once everything's bounced to a folder and ready to go to a library, I immediately open another thing and start another thing. You know, I'll do, you know, uh, you know one full record. And then when that's done and sent off, it's not like I wait for answers. I immediately start something else. Uh, you know, it's just, I'm just constantly going and uh, I don't think that I'll stop doing it until I'm probably dead because, you know, I'm married with, with a family and everything. But what, to be honest, when I'm not uh, working on music, I find myself just kind of walking around the house, not really knowing what to do. Uh, you know, I mean, besides going to restaurants and movies and maybe playing with you know, my, my cat and animal. I mean, I'm really big into animals. That's a big part of my life too, but uh, I just tend to not know what to do, so I'm always in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I mean, you're approaching this a little different than some of the other production music composers that I know, or maybe not, but you say you're doing a record and then you're turning it in. A record meaning what exactly? Is it like 10 songs? That, that, that's the big secret. You know, that's, that's, I have friends of mine who say not to give away too much information, but to be honest, I think that's, I think that's a load of bull BS. I mean, here's, here's what it is. I mean, basically let's say you have a friend who's a composer and, you know, the first thing is I would say to him is, you know, what are you best at? You know, and I usually say what they're best at, you know, oh, I'm best at this. Great. You know, what I did is, yeah, I would make, you know, 10 to 12 songs and I would go to Universal or, or, or go to, you know, whoever and just say, here's my metal record I just made. You know, uh, the first metal record I sold to Killer Tracks uh, was just called Metal. And it basically had like 14 two minute cues on it. Uh, it the stuff kicked hard ass, turned it in. And I remember it was like, this is rare that this happens even now, but that first records within 48 hours, the guy said, I want this. Mm. And, you know, he put 18 grand into my account and I was like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I used to, yeah, I was like, are you serious? And next thing I knew, I was doing as many records as I could for as many companies. Um, and now it's, you know, now it's really good. Everything's cool. Uh, I never thought I would pretty much make what I'm making now. And it's all good. Got a couple BMWs on the driveway. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. But you know what? But you know what? It, it, it does, you know, what's funny is I don't even care about that anymore. I did. I'm not going to lie. I did. But now, uh, if I found out that I would make way less, I would still do it just as hard because I love doing it. And, you know, it, it's nice. Pe- people, 
people, it's nice to have success under your belt. You know, you, you have some self-worth, you know, you, you're proud of yourself, you know, and, and that's good to carry around. Coming back again, you're doing two minute cues and you're not doing any cut downs. Oh, of course I do cut downs. Yeah. I'll do cut downs. I'll do stems. I'll do everything. Yeah. Okay. Um, but keep in mind, keep in mind that a lot of different companies ask for different things. Mm. So you may, t- you, you know, you may do everything you're going to do. And then they may say, Oh, well, we don't, we don't want these. All we need is this, this, and this. And, and all companies, you know, definitely want different things. Um, I just did my first trailer record, which I've never done before, which I'm really excited about. Uh, and, uh, I had asked the company, I said, how am I going to mix all this surround sound? Because, you know, when you go into trailers, there's just everything going everywhere. And he said, well, you're not. He said, you're going to do a mix to show, you know, the company what it is, but they are going to take all the stems and they're the ones who do that. And I had no, I I didn't know that, you know, um, I had no idea. I thought I was going to have to do that. So each company wants different things. Yeah. Okay. Last question, Michael. You've been doing this for a long time and you've been doing it on your own. So you're, you're an independent contractor and you are your own small business. So that being said, what is the best piece of business advice that you've ever received or maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Well, you know, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, one time, and I don't know if this answers your question, but this is what I always think about. And I'm in no way name dropping or anything. I did work with Don Gilmore and most people don't even know who that is, but he produced Lincoln Park and went on to be a huge producer. Calling him years later, because at the time I wanted to be a producer. And he said, just keep doing what you're doing as well as you can do it, as driven as you can do it. And one day you'll arrive. And I always thought of that. What happened in production music? I just kept doing it every single day. No one asked me to do anything. And one day I arrived, (laughs) you know, it's that simple, you know, it's, it's just pretty much happened that way, but you know what? Uh, and this, you know, people can, you know, I did a, a production video I released on my Facebook and the thing I'm doing is I have a label I co-own two of them. Well, don't co-own. I'm sort of silent partner and I have a great deal in it. And, uh, so I'm bringing in, you know, a lot of composers who, who want to do what I'm doing can just come straight to me because I don't take any writers from writers. The deals I do with outside writers is I, uh, I split with the actual company, which, you know, they don't do that with anyone else. They just like, well, Hey, if you could bring us talent, we'll give you half of our share and then the writers will keep theirs. So if any other, you know, if any listeners or anybody ever wants to, uh, get in touch with me, yeah, it's pretty simple. <laughs> you can find out more about Michael by going to about.me forward slash Michael Rafael, M I C H A E L R A P H A E L. 
Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.